0: both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories so i'm hoping that you will enjoy the show and our first guest today is gary rappaport gary is the chief executive officer of the rappaport company a retail real estate company he founded in 1984 they have 15.6 million square feet of leasing tenant rep and management and development services. He has portfolio includes more than 60 shopping centers and ground floor retail and some hundred mixed-use properties in the DC metropolitan area. He is the former chairman and trustee of the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSE. And through his service on several committees, he's been a leader in the industry. He's authored two editions of Investing in Retail Properties, which explains how to structure real estate partnerships for sharing appreciation and cash flow. He also teaches for ICSC, University of Shopping Centers, as well as a guest speaker at Johns Hopkins, Georgetown, American University, and George Mason Universities, and the University of Michigan and Georgetown Law Schools. uh grew up in Long Island, New York, and his father was a huge influence to him. He came from somewhat of a poor background, but all of his neighborhood friends were children of entrepreneurs, so he was very motivated by that energy and the ability to bring yourself up from your bootstraps. So Gary's philosophy is really derived from his father and from his family on entrepreneurial effort. So several things that he talks about today are difference between acquisitions and development in acquiring property or developing it why retail is a difficult property type to operate and manage. He says he's fortunate in being in the D.C. market and his philosophy of not selling property and his personal philosophies. So I think you will enjoy this multifaceted interview with Gary Rappaport. Welcome to the show, Gary. How are you today? Fine, thank you, John. Thank you for joining me on this podcast interview today. I appreciate it very much. So I thought we'd uh, get back into your, uh, into your family history a little bit, learn a little bit about your background. And I gave a little preamble so you can dive right into talking a little bit about your, where you came from, what your background was, and a little bit about your family. I appreciate that.
1: Well, I was born in 1950 in Brooklyn, New York. I have three younger sisters. My parents were both born in Brooklyn as well. And uh, neither one of them were college graduates. I'm the first college graduate in my family. Uh, my father was one of many men who came out of World War II. And and when I was two years old, they moved out of Brooklyn and they moved into what I like to say is a six thousand square foot lot, not a six thousand square foot house. <laughs> and they lived in that house for 48 years in West Hempstead, New York. My father uh, grew up in the Depression. He was born in 1921. He was 10 in 1931, and that was the bad times of the Depression. He sold ice cream on the beach in Coney Island, and he gave part of the money to the house. He's one of four brothers and came from a family that was towards the, um, let's say, the poorest side than the wealthier side. My father had one loan in his entire life, a 30-year mortgage on the house, which probably was one of the happiest days of his life. I remember when he paid off that mortgage after 30 years. He was a tie manufacturer uh, with his older brother, and they started in business in 1936 when he was still in high school, working after school, and I grew up thinking I was going to also be in that business. I worked in a factory in Brooklyn from the time I was 13 years old, and learning how to make dress shirts and men's ties. In his factory. In his factory, yes. he and his brother—well, uh, mm-hmm. you can call it a factory. It was like the second story of you know someone's home. It was not a factory, not at that point. It was really small, and it never got to be very big. But it was how many employees did he have? Well, he had a couple of hundred, really, back ba- ba- at, at the top time manufacturing uh, men's ties and, and, and women's some dresses and, and men's dress shirts. Turned out to be a fairly good business. For him. And uh, I learned uh, top centers, French fronts, darts, yokes, and thought I was going to go into the garment business because that's all I Did knew. he sell
0: to merchants? I mean, what
1: was he? He doing? sold to small, independent men's clothing stores. Okay. Which today, there are not very many, if any. But if you went anywhere in the United States, you might see some of the manufactured uh, ties and shirts that he and his brother made, but not the big department stores more just the independent operators throughout the country. And I spent one summer traveling around the country with a traveling salesman, selling clothing when I was a teenager, one summer uh, off the beds and motel and hotel rooms to these independent store owners. I never met anyone in the real estate business until my senior year of college. I was graduating Syracuse in 1971 With a degree in business and finance, but thinking I was going to go back and work for my father. And if not, I would surely maybe leave one day, but still be in that business, because that's the only business I grew up in. But business is what you
0: wanted to do from the get-go.
1: I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody seemed to be an entrepreneur. One man was a lawyer. One man was an accountant. One man was a shopkeeper. Most of the wives did not work. My father was one of many undercapitalized garment manufacturers, and there were a lot of garment manufacturers in the neighborhood. I remember one friend of mine's father made women's dresses, my father made men's ties, sure, and that's what we thought we were going to be up. But everybody was an entrepreneur, everybody, whether they went out of business, they seemed to start again. There were very few people that I remember in the neighborhood that weren't entrepreneurial, wanting to work for so themselves. So all your friends were sons and daughters of entrepreneurs and had this scrappy kind of
0: feeling about it. Is that, is that?
1: Well, everybody was taking risks and yeah. surely I saw people that went out of business, or at least I heard so-and-so went out of business, but somehow they started again. I don't remember everybody, anybody ever losing their house and moving out of the neighborhood. Even during, well, you didn't. You know, I don't really remember that at, at those yeah, yeah, right. at those times right. in Long Island, but I do remember that I always knew that I would be working for myself if I had that opportunity. John, I had a a newspaper route every day after school. I caddied on a golf course on um, the weekends and I worked in a factory during the summer. So when did you
0: start a calendar to keep your your schedule?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm always very, I'm very detailed. I'm very organized and I always have been. So when you had multiple jobs, you had to, okay, I got to leave now and I got to go to the next thing. And, and Well, so. you know, I, I, always, um, I always was doing something. And I enjoyed that responsibility. And my father brought me up that way. So always work hard. And I've been doing that ever since. So even
0: in the, in the rebellious times of, you know, adolescence and high school, you still followed suit.
1: I don't think I was very rebellious. I, I, um, you know, there were difficult times. I mean, there was the Vietnam War and there was protests at Syracuse and, of course, other universities. But while I um, surely remember that well, I think I was someone that more towed the line of um, conservativeness.
0: So did anybody call you about Woodstock in 1969? Get to come and see it.
1: Well, I drove past Woodstock (laughs) on that weekend. I happened to be driving home. I remember from Syracuse back to Long Island. You could not see it from the, uh, the no. interstate, and I never got off the road to go to Woodstock. But the famous anthem chant was, the New York Thruway is closed, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know how you
0: get home. Man. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. well, like many of us, we have sometimes said that we remember Woodstock well like we were there, but I was not there. So, at
0: Syracuse, you learned real estate, or at least learned about the real estate
1: industry. No, I didn't learn about the real estate industry. I was at Syracuse for 4 years. I was a short order cook for 4 years. Well, I actually started in a pizza place uh, right on campus where I started as a dishwasher, and then went to a, a waiter, then I went to a pizza maker, and then I may I went to a um, short order chef. But I worked all 4 years. My dad and mom were able to afford to send me to college, but Anything above the basic costs of college, I had to work in order to have the money to do things that I needed to do. Actually, the first real estate person I met was the father of my first wife, and he came to Syracuse when I was a senior, and I had an opportunity to meet him, and that was the first person in the real estate business I had ever met. When you were engaged and got married, then you decided to come to Washington. Well, I got got engaged, uh, and I was uh, married in... June of uh, 1972, just before my 22nd birthday. At that time, I was still working for my father. And we were actually living, my first wife, Linda, and I in Manhattan. My ex-father-in-law wanted his only daughter to move back to Washington. And so we started discussing that. And it was a very good choice because I did move to Washington. But it was also very difficult. Because I've I've had, I mean, I had all my life a very, very special relationship with my dad. You know, you learn by your experiences of one's life. And my dad, as a younger brother, was given 10% of this manufacturing company by his brother, older brother, and was sold 10%. And he never left the company, but he came home at night at times frustrated that his brother made all the decisions. Well, his brother owned 80% of the company and started the company, so he decided that was what he had to live with if he did not want to try something out on his own. And he did not, but I lived through that and remember that greatly. So I did not want to work within that company because I would be a minority owner. Mm -hmm. So I always felt I would be leaving that company at some point. What my ex-father offered me was the opportunity to figure out, was there a business I wanted to start in Washington? And I said, I don't want to work for you. And he was a retailer and a shopping center developer and owner. But we decided that maybe I would have an opportunity to be a residential home builder. And he knew another family in Washington who had a son-in-law who was actually a superintendent building single-family homes in Virginia. And maybe the two son-in-laws would come together and the families would help them. Mm -hmm. And I decided to come to Washington, meet this gentleman, and decided to move to Washington and start a home building company here in 1973. In 1973, we started a company called Par Construction, P-A-R, Powell and Rappaport. And from 1973 to 1981, we built about 400 houses around Northern Virginia. The other family, the Buckhans family, had the the, the home building expertise and the the plans and the experience. And what we offered was additional financial ability to be able to build additional homes under a new company called Park
0: Construction. 1973, was, of course, the fuel. We had the uh, gas crisis, and there was a lot of real challenges in the economy at that time. So that must have been a tough time to start a business.
1: Well, it was, but... The families actually bought 23 lots for us, and we started building 23 homes. Never in all the times of all those years that I built homes did I ever have an office. So we didn't have a lot of overhead. We had we worked out of a trailer. We were everything from the laborers to the people in the office. So at the end of that first project, it actually was a successful project and started us to go on to do the other housing projects that we did from 1973 to 1981. At some point, you decided
0: that the home building business wasn't quite profitable enough. So
1: talk to it, it wasn't profitable. I talk a lot about risk and return. And while the home building business and the way we did it at that point was profitable, different than today, we would buy the lots, we would zone the property, we would do the land development, we would be the general contractors for the houses. Hiring the plumbers and the electricians and the carpenters. And we would sell the homes and hire maybe a brokerage company to help us sell it. Today it's different. Today you might buy finished lots from a large planned urban Plan development, PUD developer. Pod developer. Right. But at that point you did everything, but it was everything is I always evaluate as risk and return. And I felt the risk was very great and that we were just waiting for the one line item that we could not control. Which was interest rates. And in 1981, prime was 18%. We were borrowing money at 20% and 30 year fixed rate mortgages were 13.5%. And we had models, land, speculative houses that were unsold. And if we didn't have a strong backing by these, by the two families, we would surely have been out of business. And I said, I don't see any way to create long term assets in the model that's set to build single family and townhouses and sell everything you have and just wait for the next downturn to really get hurt. So your background was in manufacturing because your father's background in manufacturing.
0: This was manufacturing houses. So you decided, wait a minute, this is not a sustainable business. So let's find something that's a little more sustainable. Is that a good segue into what you next did?
1: Yes. I mean, I, first of all, I loved the construction of the homes. I loved working with the homeowners. I loved everything about the design and mm-hmm. the construction of that business. But I had an opportunity to go into a business where I thought that I could create long-term assets. My ex-father-in-law being a shopping center developer and a retailer gave me an opportunity to come and work for the shopping center company. With sustainable income? Well, yes, but uh, more importantly, gave me the opportunity to learn. And I spent, I was there from 1981 to 1984, but I spent time, a lot of time, reading plans, uh, reading leases, reading construction contracts, reading partnership agreements, reading everything I could possibly learn about the business in order to be able to one day not work. For my ex-father-in-law or anyone, but to work for myself. And that was the uh, plan when I came there in 1981. Still are curious, aren't you, as a person? Of course. I was divorced in 1982 and I ran the company for two years as an ex-son-in-law, but I'm a very honest person. And surely my ex-father-in-law recognized that there was an opportunity for me to continue to run the company while one of the Uh, sons of his were still in college and was going to be coming out. And I was going to hand over the company to him Mm -hmm. and go out and start something on my own. So I made that arrangement and I ran that company and left there at the end of 1984. But I actually purchased my first shopping center on May 31st, 1984. So before we go away from the previous company,
0: Combined Properties, tell me about some of the lessons you've learned there other than absorbing all that information on your own?
1: Well, you know, that comes down to talking about things we might talk about throughout this talk. I believe that reputation is more important than anything else in this business and allows one, as one's career continues to grow, to have access to capital that they otherwise would never have. And when you're a shopping center owner, you control the livelihoods of a lot of people. You control the livelihoods of many of your tenants. And you could either be a tough businessman or you could be what I say is a good man. And I always like to say that I'm a good businessman. I never want to be known as a tough businessman, but I always first want to be known as a good man. And that's what I learned more from my father mm-hmm. as I grew up from being you know, a teenager and working with him and learning what was important to him and his business. But I surely continued believing that when I was at Combined, and I've continued believing that for my entire career. So you acquired your first shopping center in
0: 1984. Tell me a little bit about that, how how that happened, and how you raised the capital, et cetera,
1: for that. Well, when I was leaving Combined, I said, first, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back and build houses again? Or do I want to continue in the commercial shopping center business, which is all I knew. I did not know anything about building multifamily housing or Mm -hmm. office or industrial, but I did know shopping centers. And I said, I think I would like to continue to do that and try to create value by the expertise that I've gained. And I said, the way to do that is to buy something, not to build something initially, But to buy something and see if my expertise can allow me to, through renovation, expansion, re-merchandising, increasing rents, increasing cash flow, increasing the value of a property through the increased income and appreciation, could I end up buying something and having that benefit occur to me and partners that I would hopefully be able to bring into the acquisition. I looked at several properties for over a year when I was at Combined, maybe even longer, in many areas of Washington and in Western Virginia, Southern Virginia, and also Maryland, D.C., and was able to find a property. I looked at many, many, many properties, and I found an opportunity in Baltimore, a 25 to 30-year-old shopping center on the west side of Baltimore And I ended up purchasing that. And the deal was a million and a half dollar deal. We purchased the center. We had money to renovate it and and we borrowed to expand it. But we had a million dollars of debt and $500,000 of equity. I brought in 14 partners. They each put in $35,000 and I put in $35,000. And I remember borrowing half of my Mm $35,000 from one of the 14 partners.
0: How did you find your partners?
1: Well, being in Washington from 1973, and it's now 1984, I had both met a lot, and done a lot of work with a lot of different bankers Mm -hmm. on the housing projects. And I had met a lot of people being part of just the family of Mm -hmm. my ex-wives. And so um, I went to a lot more than fourteen people. I probably went to fifty people, mm-hmm. and I said, a long before I found the opportunity, I'm going to go out and try to find a shopping center to add value. I would hope that when I have something to show you, you would have interest in investing with me. When I found this opportunity in Baltimore, I put together a investment package. I decided how best to divide up cash flow and appreciation. I had taken some. Classes on syndication. I had talked to many, many people about how this was done. And I went out and was able to have 14 people that gave me an opportunity, a chance, an opportunity to purchase this property and believe in me. So That's today, great. John, that property uh, is over 60 years old and we still own that property. Of the 14 partners. 35 years I, later. I, yeah, 35 years later. So the property is over 60 years old. How many times have you renovated the property? We've renovated it maybe only two or three times. More importantly, the question is, how many times have you refinanced the property? And I use it as a case study many times of how not to over leverage a property, but balance cash flow and appreciation that you can pull some of that appreciation out in a refinance and be able to use that money to leverage onto another opportunity. Of the 14 partners, I think about half of them are still my partners. And unfortunately, the other half have passed away and those units have been sold. And in many times, many of those cases, I actually own those interests now. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to help you finance one of those times. Yes, uh, you helped me, I think, the first time of the permanent finance. That's right. Which occurred uh, just a few years, maybe 1987. That's
0: right. Talk about your first two employees and how you... You, and the start of your company and how that all evolved after you bought your shopping center, which I assume is what happened. You started your company after you bought the center.
1: Actually, yes, because I purchased the center on uh, May 31st, 1984, but I left combined properties at the end of 1984. Mm-hmm. So I had some income as I was doing management and leasing the property, but more important, I had the ability to carefully plan for that next opportunity, hopefully in 1985. And I went to a shared office space, a today we work Regis type of space, rented a office and had that shared office environment for many years and hired first, I like to say a part-time assistant that where the Regis type of uh, landlord charged me each month by the quarter hour and how I used (laughs) that person to help me write a letter or send out a FedEx package or mm-hmm. something like that. But sometime in 1985, I hired my first employee. And it grew from that each year till we had about five or six people working for us or working for me in that shared office environment. And then it became economical to move into a small office. And probably about 1987, we moved into our first small office.
0: And about that
1: year, you formed
0: a partnership with Bob Kettler to develop a shopping center, your first development deal.
1: Right. We, uh, uh, Bob and I had met each other through some people we both knew. He was um, a PUD developer, primarily uh, doing finished lots and then selling housing lots, uh, but wanted to keep the shopping center. Mm-hmm. Did not have the expertise in or the relationships with retailers. Came to me, we structured a joint venture, and built a Safeway Anchor shopping center in Centerville, Virginia. That was my first development. I have not developed very many compared to what I have. Most of what I have an ownership interest in, I have purchased and added value through, through expansion, remodeling, and remerchandising.
0: And that was the model, basically, that your ex father in law kind of had as well, pretty much. He wasn't a ground-up developer.
1: Either. No, that's not true. No, they built a lot of shopping centers. Okay. Yep. No, the model that I said is because of the what's the most difficult part of putting a deal together, which is raising equity. Right. And I tell people when I talk to them, everybody wishes to develop if they wish to own real estate, Mm -hmm. and I tell them to be patient to do four or five deals by acquiring something. And I and I give this example. If I went to an investor and I said, I'd like you to invest with me in this new development. And once we buy it, we're going to start doing plans. And um, that'll take about uh six to nine months. And then we're going to go get entitlements, whether it's zoning or whether it's just building permits and site plan approval, and we'll get that done in another 15 months. So now we're two years. And then we're going to do the horizontal construction. Maybe that'll be another year. Then we're going to do the vertical construction of the buildings, and that'll be the fourth year. And then we're going to stabilize the property, and that's going to be the fifth year. And we're going to give you some distributions on your investment in the sixth year. Well, that's pretty hard when you compare it with buying an operating property and you tell someone, you know, I can't give you an 8% return right away. I'm going to give you 4%. And next year, I'm going to give you 6%. And I'm going to start doing something to create value. And then I'm going to give you 8%, 10%, and 12%. And overall, by the way, you're going to get a certain return. And um, let's go out and look at it. It's really operating. You can kick the tires. You can say, this is something I'm going to own. Well, all of a sudden, in one year, I have a management fee. I have a leasing fee. I have a back-end interest. And I have the ownership, in some way, of a property. So instead of having one property at the end of six years, I have six properties at the end of six years. Just one a year, not one every three months. It's hard to find. One a year, six properties, six management fees, six leasing fees, maybe six development fees. Not being fee-driven on the on the point that it's Mm -hmm. unreasonable, but from the standpoint of stability, after doing that, you're on your way. You're able now to live, and you're able to start to build a company up. And then... When you get some liquidity and you feel that you want to take that added risk, that risk of land development and development from the ground up, then you could decide if you want to build something from the ground up, but not until after you have enough stability to be able to take that risk. It's interesting you say that because
0: uh, in my client base, I have people that have come from both, you know, they start out with the buy-sell mentality and more of a merchant type of positioning. And then there are others that are buy and hold. And then there's some that are in the development business to think that with the promote and all the different incentives of ownership and sale on a, on a frequent basis, that it might make sense to think about doing that and that the returns, et cetera, will be better over, over a long period of time. That's not your model. And I know that you have a very strong feeling about not selling real estate. So tell me about that
1: philosophy. a little bit. Well, you mentioned model. And I talk a lot about, the model. Mm -hmm. And I say the more one could hear of other people's model, then the more that individual can decide how much of that model fits their own personality and their desire. We'll talk a second about the merchant builder or not the merchant builder, but it also relates to risk. Mm -hmm. We'll go back and talk more about that as Mm -hmm. different people have different tolerances for risk. And again, the model is where You have to find out from everybody's model what fits and what is going to be your model. I have a lot of good friends that are what we say are merchant builders, Mm -hmm. and they are very successful, and they live a business career and a life that's less stressful than mine. They buy something, they put it under contract, they create value, they build something, they create value, they sell it, Mm -hmm. they take part of that income and they live on it. And they take part of that income and they invest it and leverage it with other people's money on another property and another property and another property. The benefits they have is by selling something that it would otherwise be illiquid, they gain liquidity and thus they're not signing for the same kind of liabilities and they have a model that works for them. And there are people out there that say, there's always a time to sell. And I don't believe that. I don't want to sell. And I, but I know that when I look at these friends of mine over a career, mm-hmm. that while they have a very successful career and life, the assets that I've created for myself, my family, for my partners, my investors, some of the people here in our company is because we have owned properties long term. And while we work on another deal or another deal, the ones that we've kept are continuing to both appreciate slowly. Real estate is a long-term investment and the loans are amortizing. And I believe that assets have been created under my model much greater than the model of developing and selling or acquiring and creating value through renovation or re and selling.
0: So now that you're talking about models, let's get into philosophy a little bit and talk a little bit about your your work ethic and your how you divide your time and what are your, your life priorities?
1: Well, as you heard before about you know being a good man, we talk about reputation. And I'm sitting at this point in my career with an unlimited amount of equity based on anything I wish to do for the rest of my life, both from institutional partners if I want to go down that road, or over now over 500 individual, let's call it, friends and family. But I've never had any family that's been able to give me any investment, surely emotional support and love. But then my parents were never able to invest money with me or lend money to me. And the other part about raising the dollars is I also, from the, the debt side, have as many lenders that would like to lend to us sure. for the same reason. But it all relates to reputation. Put that reputation on the side here and recognize how important it is. Dividing my life up, John, as you've heard before. Yes, I talk about taking a third of my life first for my family, always family first. I'm very fortunate. I have five daughters. I have 10 grandchildren, a wonderful wife. We're now married 22 years and I get along well with my ex-wife because that's what's important to keep a family together. And we do that. And we've been doing that, you know, since we were married in 73. And uh, divorced in uh, 1982. The second third is the business side. And I say that anyone who spends, of course, as much as we all do in our business need to really love what we're doing. And I teach my children that it's not to own real estate, that's the end-all to end-all. What's the end-all to- end-all is as simple as saying, "Another day in your life you can get up and love that day in your life." And you could check off and say, "This is a wonderful day." And I'm very fortunate. I love my business. I love coming to work every day. But I say to my kids, find something, whether it's real estate or not. And with my five children, none of them are in real estate. Mm -hmm. One is a social worker. One's in college. Two right now are taking care of large families. But all of them, I believe, have lives that they get up every day and they love. And I do that as well. And I'm very fortunate for that. That third, of that last third is a lot that I relate back to my father. And he said, take a third of your life and first give, it, give the monies to charities as you can afford to give, but do more than that. Give of your time, you know, help others reach their dreams sooner than they otherwise could reach them. And you'll do something special with your life. And when you get older, Gary, which is what I am now, you will have as much satisfaction out of that third of your life As the other two thirds. And so I have written several books as a volunteer for the trade association, helping people working in the real estate business that hope to leave one day and structure, leave their job and purchase a property or build something and own real estate. How do they structure deals? And these books help them to to get there. Then I teach, I mentor, I talk to anybody that wishes to talk to me and I have and do obtain every day as much satisfaction out of that third of my life as I do with the other two thirds. Tell me a bit about your company, what your
0: vision is, what's your vision for your employees and clients and tenants? And what, does, what are your clients, your employees all know about your vision, what you're trying to, to, to convey to the community, your reputation? And then what
1: strengths do you personally bring to the
0: table to lead that vision?
1: Well, I started the company, as you know, in a shared office space. So we have about 110 people here right now. Mm -hmm. and We're managing about 11 million square feet, about 60 shopping center properties, about $3 billion worth of real estate, uh, primarily all in the Washington metropolitan area. And I have an ownership interest in about half of those properties, half of the square footage, half of the value. And of those 30 properties I have an interest in, About 20 are with friends and family and about 10 are with institutional partners. And then we do the first floor leasing under over a hundred high rise buildings where we don't own or manage any of those buildings, but we do the first floor retail leasing. And we represent about 75 retail tenants in the market. And it gives us the opportunity to know the rents and the vacancies across urban, suburban and mixed use in one market. And while we're not in any way near the largest of some of the major developers in the city, we are leasing more retail space in the Washington metropolitan area than anybody else. And that's part of the model as you've built a company up is that I've had people come to me and say, you know, why are you managing and leasing other people's property? You know, you only have your time. Why don't you try to do another deal? And part of that is that um, wanting to have stability. And that comes back all the way maybe from my dad who grew up in a depression, Mm -hmm. who was worried always about having a roof over the head of himself and his family and food on the table. And I remembered that. And while I'm never fearful that would ever occur, I do want to have stability, not just for myself, but also the people that are working for me. And so what I've done is built a company up as it's grown each person and we built more property to oversee We never make a lot of money in the management company because a management company doesn't expect to make a lot of money, especially if your philosophy, as it should be, is to have it to, with all the services necessary to protect the real estate and increase the value of the real estate. So in the management company, we have 110 employees right now, and the management company will say, quote, breaks even. But in return for that, it gives great service. To oversee the real estate and it allows the hopefully for us to have the best employees in the company because they know that as much as anyone can guarantee, there is a stability in good or bad times for them to have a job and decide to make their career in the company. And the time I'm most proud of is as it was actually those terrible times of around 2009. In that in all the company meetings, I talk about, you know, how important it is for me to make sure that people feel that they have stability here and want to make their career here. In 2009, we all know public companies let go of lots of people. Private companies, especially development companies, let go of their entire development departments and let their companies go to a much smaller size. And we didn't let go of one person. We hired more people for accounts receivable, more people for leasing, more people for financial projections, because I owned the management company. And while I took a loss during those times, they it was not material compared to the real estate side that we had to protect. And it just took the company to a different level of reputation within the Washington community. The same point in this model, that stability Allows us to only buy properties that are the right properties at the right time. We're not saying, Oh, if I don't, if we don't buy a property by the end of this year, we can't make payroll. We need another fee. We need something in order to continue to pay everybody. And that's a wonderful position to be in. And I've been in that position for many years. And the third part is you, we've built a work environment that is where people wish to come to work. I mean, management companies could be in the back of a shopping center in a uh, small, dark space because a lot of it is not needing to be in a space. But we are in that space because we think that brings the best employees within the company. Because in this area of Washington, D.C., where I've been here now for 46 years, we have, even though everywhere today there's low unemployment, we've always had low unemployment. People have always had a choice where they wish to work. And so we need to understand, and I need to always understand, their private lives as well, to understand that they have uh, flexibility to to leave and take care of their family, that the family is first. And when I, we have a company meeting here every three months. Everybody must attend. We end up, and I talk at that meeting first about a little bit about what we're doing. But more importantly, I thank everybody for deciding to be in this company. And I reinforce how much um, it's, it's recognized and appreciated. And that is what allows us to have a company and a reputation. I think that is uh, like no other company here in Washington.
0: So let's move to the uh, investment side of your business and how you're looking at transactions. And what, what is kind of the ideal Rampaport deal in today's marketplace that you're looking at? If you're looking at buying, acquiring new properties today.
1: Well, the first thing that is not... Is It's not funds. We, we don't raise funds. Okay. Every deal stands on its own. And that's because the um, assets that one creates in these deals, if one does especially a good job, is in that back-end promoter, carried interest. And I believe that in these funds, many times, if if you have a three good deals and two deals that are fair, you might find out your back-end interest is materially affected by that. And so I have decided that while it's, it's easier at this point in my career to raise a fund and have money available, I have gone through my entire career of saying within a short period of time, I'm going to put the deposit up. I'm going to do all the pre-diligent work. I'm going to get the financing. I'm going to raise the equity. I'm going to, I'm going to if it's a 30-day engineering study and a 30-day close, I'm going to perform And I'm going to live with that stress every day. But in return for that, I believe that the sharing arrangement is much more beneficial. So every one of our deals is separate. Now, for most of my career, up to the last few years, they've all been shopping centers. And they've grown in size from, you know, the first deal in '94 was a million and a half dollars. And they've gone, of course, as time has gone on, to five and 10 and 20 and 50 and 100. And the last deal we did in 2018 was when it was an Wegmans anchored center, and we purchased 551,000 feet of retail for $175 million. So every deal is different, but everyone stands on its own.
0: Just as a
1: quick education point, could you
0: explain what a back end interest is again?
1: Think of the front end as the equity that is put into a deal, and it could be equity of your investors. And it could also be equity of your own. And that equity, let's assume that there's 10 of us and each put in $100,000 and we have a million dollars worth of equity. That equity generally gets some type of preferred return. It might be 8%. It might be a a cumulative non-compounded return. It might be a cumulative compounded return. It might be related to a time value of money and an IRR return, and it might not. But once that return is achieved, then think of if that's the front, there's a back. And the back will call a promote, a bonus, a carried interest. And that's something that I or I and maybe some of the people in the company would get, but only if we did a good job and only if we gave that preferred return first. But if we do a good job, the dollars at that, that back-end return received is very great
0: and that is typically because you don't sell that is typically when you recapitalize on a on a refinancing for the property is that correct when you collect that it, or does it just accrue to the real estate there
1: there's two different parts to it okay there is a sharing arrangement in cash flow and there's a sharing arrangement at time of refinance or sale let's say that first deal I did and actually one I did the same in 2017 I gave an 8% preferred return cumulative, non-compounded, and out, out of cash flow, and accumulates every year. But once I got the 8% to every investor, if there was another $1,000 to be distributed, it could be distributed half to the equity and half to the back end. Mm-hmm. It could be distributed 75% to the equity sure. or 25% to the back end. Mm-hmm. So the bonus or promoter-carried interest can come out of cash flow, the same time when you refinance first there's a catch up of 8 or, or sale Is there first is a return up to 8% if it was not given out of cash flow then people get back their investment and then there's that sharing arrangement whether it's 50-50 or 75-25 or whatever it might be and at the time of if it's a refinance and everybody gets their money back after that there is no more 8%. And now there's just a sharing arrangement, which is of course very beneficial to us in owning real estate long-term and eventually making sure that the investors get back their money at an 8% return. But of course, remember, they always own the property. We're not buying out their interest. We're just reallocating the distribution of cash flow Mm -hmm. and uh, proceeds on refinance because we don't sell. So that's how the dollars come out to the investors and to us
0: we talked a little bit about your company strength and your property management business a little bit and you're very interested in third-party leasing and management and have been that way basically as far as i've known since 1990 or so when we had the difficult times and that was your at that moment that was your prime source of revenue as i recall that was a tough time it was probably one of the toughest times in in our industry's business uh, area around here I'm just curious about, you know, why you continue with that. And I assume it's just because of an employee retention and you want to make sure your reputation remains strong in the marketplace.
1: Well, as we say, it's more than that. It's, of course, the knowledge of the marketplace. Right. I mean, if you're a a landlord leasing the office space and you lease space to a tenant, most likely you're not going to be leasing another space to that tenant and another space to that tenant. And so the relationship with that tenant doesn't grow as it does in retail but in retail the more relationships you have the more touching you have between landlord and tenant the more the business is of great knowledge when one has mm-hmm. so when i said before that you know we have, we know the rents and vacancies of every retail property urban suburban and mixed use it's because of the number of properties we manage and the relationships we have 1800 leases almost everybody in this business that has a i'd say a few stores is a tenant of us of our somewhere. If you're a tenant coming into the market, you have to talk to us if you want to open stores in this market. And if we have a relationship already on a shopping center, whether we own it or not, then we have the ability on a new opportunity, a new uh, uh, a new development, a new acquisition, a new way to re property. We're going to people we know. So in the retail business, different than any other sector of real estate the more you know what's going on in the market the more relationships you have the more all the properties benefit so let's
0: getting into retail let's talk about the retail industry a little bit i'd like to learn you know you obviously have a, a very long history in it you've also seen it from the the top being the chairman of the international council of shopping centers for a year and so you've met owners of proper of retail property from every from a single property owner to Simon Properties that owns you know more property than any other or the largest assets of any set. So tell me the where you see the industry going. What's the future of retail because of the influx of Amazon, et cetera, just from your perspective? I, I'd kind of like to get your view on that.
1: I probably get asked that as much as any question of, course. of what's happening, whether it's an investor or it's someone like yourself. But a personal perspective, not necessarily a company perspective. Right. Well, the most hard to say on the personal side is I believe re- retail is surely not disappearing, first of all. I love the internet as much as anyone else. <laughs> I shop and my wife shops. I think every day I come home and there's something on the front <laughs> step from either Amazon or some other internet retailer. Okay, recognizing that. At the same point, let's recognize when we talk about not just the real estate sector, but the sectors within the real estate sector. And of course, when we talk about location. So we're sitting here and let's look at the macro first. The internet retailers that are out there today are trying, of course, to continue to figure out how to grow. And what they're finding out is that it's very difficult to grow by just doing the same thing that they're doing. So we're seeing a lot of the internet retailers opening up stores. And why are they opening up stores? They're opening up stores because wherever they open up a store... Not just the store sales are there, but the internet sales in that area grow. Because we as shoppers, if we have the opportunity to buy on the internet and return on the internet, buy on the internet, return in the store, go in the store. If it's not available. It'll be on the internet. They'll get it to you the next day. And that's where the one and one equals three. And I give an example that at Christmas time. so I go to my wife and I say, I'd like you to tell me what you'd like for Christmas. Well, of course, the first thing she says is, I don't really want you to tell me. I want you to tell, but buy something. I don't want to tell you what I want. But I said, no, you got to help me out. So she says, okay, well, there's a store at the mall called Soma, and a women's clothing store. And she says, I would like, here's my size. Here's the colors I like. I like this and this. Okay. So I go in the store and I go to the sales clerk and the the young woman says, yes, that one we have. I look at it. I say, perfect. And she says, the other one, I'm sorry, we don't have it. Now, in times past, I would have bought one unit and I'm gone. She says, excuse me, let me just walk over to the computer. She says, oh, we have that in the warehouse. You like it. We can send it to your office or your home and you'll have it tomorrow. I said, great. I walked out buying two units. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. Amazon, as I like to say, didn't buy Whole Foods to close them. Uh, they're, opening <laughs> uh, they're opening up bookstores. They're opening up cashless cafes. Mm-hmm. They're opening up now sm- small grocery stores. There's so many retailers out there that are only Internet in the past. Now, it doesn't mean that things are stable. In the retail business, there are (laughs) people say it's the most, it's the hardest business to understand, the hardest business to oversee. When you talk about tenant mix, when you talk about exclusives and restrictions and long term leases, it's very complicated. But at the same point, that allows people that are really good at it to really benefit by the expertise you know that they have. So to me, surely. The uh, staples, they still don't know what size they want to be. The office depots, they don't know what size. And many other categories are, are, of tenants are having issues of trying to figure out, with the continual growth of the internet, what size they should be and still be, be uh, successful in an operating brick-and-mortar store. At the same time, the retail has changed. I mean, if you look at the mix in the beginning when I started in 1984, you know, grocery stores were 30,000 feet. I mean, today they're all over in size. I mean, we have the Wegmans at one hundred thirty in this area, which we're very fortunate. We have Wegmans at one hundred thirty-five thousand. We have the Giants and the Harris Teeters and the Safeways at fifty, sixty thousand dollars. But we have the Whole Foods and we have the Trader Joes and we have the Aldis and the Food Lions and the Lidl's and and we just have so 7-11. many. Seven <laughs> Eleven. Well, <laughs> food. When you look at the categories, whether it's CVS, Costco. Surely, 7-Eleven, all those as well. They yeah. all take part of it. But everything comes back then to location. And I look on the big picture again. I'm in Washington, D.C. We have 11 million feet. We're like 96% leased. And we have been for years. And we don't have any big boxes available. But it's not just us. The whole market is at least 94, 95% leased. Because in this market, as long as you have capital, when something comes available, whether it's a bankruptcy or the... Re- reduction in size of a retailer like Staples, you can take it back, subdivide it, or release it, and you can still create more value than what was probably paid before that.
0: The the land use issues in the Washington region, in my opinion, and you correct me if I'm wrong, force you to build quality real estate. Otherwise, you're going to get crushed. You just can't, you know, you're not going to be able to build, you know, a D-level quality piece of real estate. You have to build quality real estate because it just takes too much time and effort. And you can't raise capital without having a solid base of anchors and, and retail tenants to even get the project out of the ground.
1: Yes, but yes, but the other part is this, this extensive master planning and difficulty of obtaining permits right. also allows that real estate to continue to appreciate. I did own a few, three shopping centers in North Carolina in the late 1980s, in Greensboro and Winston-Salem. I sold those centers and took that capital for myself and my investors back to Washington because there wasn't as much master planning. And there was the ability for many properties to be built and competitive properties that allowed that because of it, the rents kept going up and then went down, kept going up and then went down. And so to me, That was not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in an area like Washington, D.C. The other problem with Washington is when you talk about location is because the demographics here are so strong. The average household income is so high. Uh, Of course, Amazon's coming, which only helps in that as it relates to the business I'm in. I give an example as you compare in the mall business today, two different malls and the problem. I know someone who has a mall in, I'll say, a tertiary market like um, Huntsville, Alabama, and um, the the Sears closed, or the Macy's closed, or the Bonton closed, and they have the capital. And they could buy back, as you know, in these malls, the anchors own their buildings, and they own their space around their buildings. So let's say that the owner of that mall in Huntsville, Alabama, has the capital to buy back that building and the land for Macy's. And the capital to knock it down. Mm -hmm. And the capital to build something else. Problem is, is that while the construction costs might be 75% of the costs of Washington, D.C., the rents could be a third. And so they can't make the numbers work. You can't build the added density because they nobody wants to build 500 apartment units over a mall in Huntsville, Alabama. So you're kind of like in a difficult place as you're trying to re-merchandise your malls when the ability to make the numbers work don't work. But here in Washington in the last year, the Tysons 2, owned by General Growth, which is now Brookfield. The Macy's closed or at least the negotiation occurred first and then the Macy's closed. But Brookfield of General Growth gave Macy's $32 million and they bought it back. And right now it's being demolished and what's coming? Apartments more retail, Mm -hmm. outdoor retail, maybe an ice skating rink, maybe a hotel, and they can create a lot of value. And on Montgomery Mall, which is owned by Westfield, Mm -hmm. they bought the Sears back last year for $72 million. Well, they're in there for rezoning now for retail, but in addition, 1,500 apartment units. Mm -hmm. The ability to create value in this market is what retail is always part of. It's an evolving change. And we, in this market, have the advantage of the federal government, the military. And when you talk about, again, risk and return, there are many other good markets. But if for many, many years, if I see someone sends me an opportunity to purchase or build something outside of the Washington area, I don't have interest. My interest is to be in this market because this market balances risk and return. And in fact, because... There's only so much retail. You know, we think there's a lot of retail, but when we look how many square feet of office and how many square feet of apartments and how many square feet of retail, retail is not the larger part in any way. And it's very hard to uh, acquire properties here because there's not many that come up for sale and there's many buyers that wish to buy it. So our decision was to move into the beginnings of some mixed use.
0: What was the last shopping center built with buying a site? just, you know, undeveloped. When was the last center built?
1: A couple of years ago, there was a whole food center built out in Leesburg there. But I I can tell you that it's a handful in the entire Washington area. (laughs) Of course, that's part of the change also of where growth is going. I mean, I grew up and the story was if I could own a small lot with a little backyard, I've reached the American dream. But today... People, Many people want to live and work in an environment that's near transit, walkable. where everything's walkable. They don't have to get in their car. And it's not just the young millennial that's not yet married. I mean, there's people that are married with children that want to live their whole life in an urban environment or live at least in a higher density environment where they can access you know, transit quickly and be able not to have to use a car unless it's... Even uh, empty nesters who don't want the hassle with the house anymore. Right. So it's a totally different, you know, dynamic of why things are what they are. But still, retail and especially grocery-anchored retail is still a very, very desirable category to be in. And surely, even though there's a lot of internet deliveries of retail and grocery, the grocery store seems to still be something that while it's very competitive, it seems to still be a category that is very, very strong in bricks and mortar.
0: Let's shift gears again and go into some business stories. What would you say was an event or an occasion that you realized that you were a a successful businessman, developer, owner of real
1: estate? What was, what event? Well, thank you for thinking and saying that. Of course I, you are. I am. You know, uh, I think that the, the part that allowed me to feel that was, was the part where I felt I was going to survive, that I had enough income coming in that I could live every day and still be able to continue to grow slowly under the model I had. And that was probably, you know, fortunately, probably about 1987, I bought a shopping center in 1986 and raised five and a half million dollars, put on a nine and a half million dollar loan with Aetna. I remember the shares were $137,500. So that was 40 shares. I sold half shares and I had about 50 partners. That management fee on that center, the leasing fees and the other fees gave me the ability to stabilize myself as an individual, knowing I could live. And that was the beginnings of feeling comfortable that I was going to um, survive, uh, hopefully during a career, you know, in this business and this model. That so I've then set.
0: 1991 came along.
1: So tell me about your experiences that year. Well, 1991 was, you know, you know we're living right now in a very long period of time of, you know, uh, of a strong economy. Right. But overall, you know, every... <laughs> Ten years, you know, we're going to hit a recession and yes. we're going to have to deal with it. And there's always that balance of being uh, of, of, of liquidity and using that liquidity to do something new and holding it on the fear that something's going to happen and you're going to need it, especially in the model where I am, where, where I'm not selling and I'm never liquid. I'm always worried about balancing liquidity against growth. And 91 was tough. And we lost a property in 91. And we had a lot of investors on that. And I always felt, you know, somewhat, it wasn't my fault. We lost several tenants. We couldn't pay the debt service. And I wasn't strong enough to carry it during those times. And we lost a property. Those investors, at least what I've taught, learned is, if you continually inform your investors of the good and the bad, it's going on. And you don't surprise them that most of them will accept that. And a lot several of those investors that were in that deal have invested with me again. I have never had a lawsuit. I've never had a truly a disgruntled investor, because we're there to make sure that they all feel that they have all the information they need and they have to balance that risk and return of investing as well. But I could say that I've always been a good salesman and Today, I'm much stronger, of course, than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 1990, you know, 30 Recently, years ago. Yeah.
0: Gary, so tell me, you have
1: a 110
0: employees and you have a
1: senior management
0: staff. Some of them have been with you for almost 30, if not more than 30 years now. How do you retain your senior people and even your medium people? I mean, what what incentives do they have to stay instead of, you know, going out on their own and starting their own firm? or if they do, you, I'm sure you help them or think about you know what they might want to do, but you also want to find out why they're doing it and if there was some issue that came up as a result. So talk a little bit about that.
1: You know, at this point in my life, when I go out to raise money from investors, there's um, two questions that are asked. The first question is, what's going to happen with my investment if you're not here tomorrow? And the second question pertains very much specifically, I'd say to the same same issue, is related to stability of the investment. Mm -hmm. And tell me how I can evaluate risk and return uh, by that. And, And we've structured something very interesting here. And for the top employees in the company, we have given them interest in the shopping center. I actually lend them money, but they never have to pay it back except through the Investment that they're investing in there's no downside so let's give an example. let's just say the top four people in the company they each get five percent. That means if I invest a million dollars, I lend them each fifty thousand dollars and then when there's cash flow they pay me back an accrual of interest and the principal but on day one they own the property. so they're in fact they're having a they have a they get a salary there's a bonus. Is an ownership in real estate. And the last thing is that, God forbid, if I die tomorrow, they can buy the management company if they wish at an appraised value. And management companies aren't worth very much. Uh, On a long-term note, so at a very low interest rate, the lowest interest rate the government allows, so they, in effect, can buy the management company where hopefully no cash would ever be needed, that just the additional income, if I was not here anymore, would allow them to be able to own the company. So they basically are protecting their salary, their bonus by owning the management company, as well as owning real estate. That answers both the investor's question about long-term stability if I'm not here tomorrow, and it also solidifies the top people in the company. But then we have the next kind of groupings of people. And we are trying to figure out how to do that. And we're trying to do that by buying possibly some, we've been looking at buying smaller properties where they don't have to be accredited investor, they actually can invest whatever they think they wish to invest. And they actually can own real estate with us in a structure that allows them to invest whatever they can invest. Of course, they are receiving a salary and they are receiving a bonus. And we are looking more and more into, into bringing down ownership interest in the real estate to more than just the top executive committee as it is right now. So Gary, tell me about some of the lessons that you've
0: learned over, over in your career and looking at both with people, with, with the industry itself, what kind of stands out in your mind as far as things that you've learned about this industry itself, how it differentiates from other things that you could have considered doing, and also some, some ideas or stories about, about that,
1: if you have something to share. Everything still first comes back to reputation. I sit there, I have my name on the company, The name is on all the leasing signs throughout the city. I like the reputation I have at this point in my life, more so than owning another piece of real estate. I give a story of this. When I first came to Washington in 1973, I'm 23 years old. And this developer who is maybe 15 or 20 years older than me. And so I was 23. So he's 38. And he has actually been quite successful out there. And I met him at a party, and he, or a reception, and he was always very nice to me as a young, scared person coming to Washington and going into the real estate business. And today I'm 69, so he's got to be 85. I remember a year or so ago, I was at a dinner and he, in a restaurant, and he came over to me, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, "Gary." And he's a very, very successful 85-year-old real estate developer at this time, one of the largest real estate developers in Washington, D.C. And he came over and he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, Gary, I hear that you're doing very well, but more importantly, I hear that you're a really good man and I'm proud of you. And he walked away. Or at least we talked and then he walked away. And I could tell you, I never will ever forget that because what he basically showed me was that my model is correct. What my dad told me is correct. I receive more satisfaction at this point in my life when I go to an event that's not real estate, a charitable event, or um, anything outside of our business, and someone comes over to me and says the same thing. That I hear you're a good man, and I don't think there's anything more important than that. And that's what I've always strived for. And I always talk about that with everybody in the company We talk about setting that philosophy through the company. Every time we have a meeting every three months with everyone in the company, we have new people in the company and we have to make sure that they understand the philosophy that's set through this company from me down and how they deal with tenants, how they deal with vendors, how they deal with bankers, how they deal with partners. Every day, again, I always say to everybody, we want to be considered good business people, but first we want to be considered good people. So that segues into what
0: I think is maybe a related question. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today about the industry? If you were face-to-face with your 25-year-old
1: self, what would you tell that person? You know, I'm, I, John, it's the same thing. It's saying, you know, be a good business person, but first, you know, be a good person. Be a good man. Be a good woman. Be, be somebody that is uh, proud of one's reputation. That's the character you got from your father, Uh, I I have it from my father. And at this point in my life, I believe that everything that that I've accomplished has been because I haven't hurt anybody. We control the livelihoods of a lot of tenants. We have 1,800 tenants, whether it's a dry cleaner, whether it's um, an independent restaurant operator. Times are bad at times, sales go down. You want to take advantage of someone you have great strength as a landlord and you could hurt people and hurt an entire family or you can help them during those times and help them weather those times. I say at times, it's not that I could say every tenant from, God forbid, having unfortunate times, but if I could help them survive those times, then I'm a good person. I go home at night and my place of, of, of morality is in the right place. I go home at night and I feel good about where I am and what I've done that day and where others might consider their lines in different places and they might be considered tough business people. I never want to be known for that. I want my line of morality where it is and I'm proud of where it is. You've mentioned to me about one
0: project that is a special one to you. So tell me a little bit about that project. And why you did it, and why you've been so persistent over these years trying to keep that thing going and make that happen.
1: The project's called Skyland, and the project is in Ward 7, across the street from Ward 8, the two forest wards of the District of Columbia. And the wards that have not benefited by some of the growth uh, that has occurred in the in Washington, D.C., downtown area or the entire metropolitan area over the last you know, twenty or thirty years. And it's now been um, eighteen years. Now, how did that come to you the first at first? In two thousand and one, I was not yet chairman of ICSC. I was chairman of two thousand two to two thousand three, but I was on the executive committee and I was giving speeches around the United States about how we as developers and how we as retailers should go back into all of our inner cities. That it's complicated, but it can be successful, and there's truly a need for it, and we should step up and take part of our time and our monies to do that. And in 2001, the District of Columbia put out a RFP, a request proposal, on a site of 17 and a half acres ward seven and eight that was retail but not successful for many, many years, and asked me if I would put a team together in order to maybe be selected to redevelop this property into retail with residential as well in in some setting that would allow the people around that area of Ward 7 and 8 to have some of the choice that they did not have at that time. Wasn't the ownership of that property
0: all complicated and Confusing as well?
1: Well, like any of these downtown properties, this was 17 and a half acres, 43 separate parcels, over 22 separate owners. (laughs) And the district selected us and our team, which I led, to a purchase directly, condemnation, supposedly at some point to give us the property in order to build a town center that the community desired. And they were there were many years of fighting by the District of Columbia with the Kelo decision. And did they have the right to purchase these properties from individual landowners? But they eventually gave us the property, which we purchased a number of years ago. And 19 years later now, or almost 19 years later now, we're under construction with that first building. And we could sit here and talk a long time about yes. the right of condemnation. And property rights. And I could argue either side of that from the standpoint of, is this beneficial to a community, a landowner? But at the end of the day, I do still believe is necessary at times in order to, what I say is, it's a common good for the majority. And the common good for the majority is to take properties like this and bring in partners, expertise, money in order to give these communities. Otherwise, these communities become poorer and poorer, and other communities that have choice become uh, stronger and stronger. And this allows these communities in the long run to to grow and survive as well. So this was a public-private partnership. It was a public-private partnership. It still is a public-private partnership. And we are building the first building, 267 residential units, over 85,000 feet of retail, And we're planning the second building. One of the buildings is uh, senior housing. We might have some medical uses. We'll have more retail. When I look back at 19 years and I look at the amount of how many meetings I've had in people's homes and in schools and in recreation centers, how much money I've invested in this property, I know I could have done many acquisitions in the suburbs and, quote, had a lot more properties that I own. But at the end of the day, when I look back at it, I have met some of my closest friends by being in people's homes. I think this is the most, surely the most, I know it's the most complicated project I've ever worked on, but it will be the one I'm most proud of, of all that I've ever been part of. So many people, you know, when they hear the word real estate developer, it
0: doesn't always come up in in the best light sometimes. So in this situation, where you've gone to people's homes, where you've had to be, and you're saying, this can be better for you. Was that really that meaningful to them? I mean, does it, did it resonate with them to the point where you felt that they didn't look at you as the big bad developer. They looked at you, here's a guy that's going to come in and try and help the community and, and do something
1: you know positive for, for, for us. I'll say the majority of the people believed that. But in the beginning, you know, everybody has doubt. Course. and walking into that in a community that is the community of Skyland and say that I'm going to be committing to my time and energy over all the years necessary to get something accomplished on parcels of land that in the past things had been promised and they did not occur surely there was doubt but you know you persevere you know you go to enough meetings at night and meet with enough people and people believe and I I have a passion for when I talk about what's important in my life and I talk about this is important to me, you know, over time people do believe and I will get this project completed 100% surely before I, uh, I'm never (laughs) going to retire, but surely hopefully it'll be before I'm not able to do anything else, but I'm very proud of it and I'm glad that we're under construction with the first major building there and it's beautiful. I mean, it's exciting and it's beautiful, and the neighborhood is excited about it. And I think it's going to be, you know, I don't know how uh, successful it will be financially if one did a calculation of all the years and all the investment. But that's not important at this point in my life. I'm 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 fortunate enough, and so this. I want my time on this. This
0: project is is more on the last third of your of your life to some extent than the, than the business side. Well, yeah, in, in in 19 years respect. ago,
1: I thought it was more in the center. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> at this point, I surely had many choices and many times I was, you know, there was thoughts of saying, is this really going to occur? And should I continue this? But I continued to persevere with my team. And my team is the same team that's been there for 19 years. My nonprofit, partners, all my partners are the same. Everyone hang in. Everybody is there the same for 19 years, and we're going to probably. It could take another 10 years to finish the whole project. I don't know. It all depends on how successful the first phase is and the second phase is. But at the end, you know, it's all going to get done. And it's going to be, from the standpoint of the community and the people that are going to either live there or shop there or both, it's going to be something they've wished for and desired and are happy that's going to be there. I don't care at this point if one looks back on the financial return and say, you know, one made money on it or one lost money on it. That's not important at this point in my life. What's important is to get this thing finished and be able to stand out there with a lot of these people that, I've, that are now good friends that live in the community and say we did this all together. That's great testimony, Gary. It really
0: is. It's exciting. Thank you. It's really exciting. So I'm going to end it now with my final question. If you could write a message on a billboard and post it for
1: millions to see, what would it say? Well, I would say, John, help others achieve their dreams, and you'll achieve yours. Well, Gary, thank
0: you very much for your time and, the, and today on the interview, and appreciate it for those listening. The show notes will have information about how to reach Gary. Gary is willing to share his email address to all of you. And you can reach out and he will respond. He's been very responsive to everyone I've ever shared his contact information with over the years. And has always been responsive to me whenever I've needed anything. And he and I have known each other now for 35 years. So a long,
1: long time. John, uh, as you you just said, anybody that wants to uh, send me an email and wishes to talk to me, on the phone, I'll set up, and they can make a phone call to me as well. I'll set up the time. I'll find the time to talk to them on the phone about anything they want to talk about. They want to come to Washington, D.C., or they're here in Washington, D.C., they want to come over to the office. We'll sit and talk about, again, anything. What I always say, and then is that, as I said earlier in this podcast, if I can help someone reach their dreams soon than they otherwise could reach them, then I've done something special with my life. And I'm happy to do it. And I'll do it with anybody. That wishes to reach out to you.
0: Thank you, Gary. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, George.